We ask, Lord, that you would open this passage before us to our understanding. We thank you for this labor that we've been able to invest as a church through the book of Romans, and we're grateful that you have brought us now to consider its close. And I pray that the sanctifying effects of this journey will continue in our assembly for years to come as you give us life, as we continue to walk with you. May we understand more clearly the glories of your name and help us in this time as we close out this book to consider again its theme, its purpose, and to consider who you are. For those who know not Christ, I pray that you would open their eyes to the salvation that is in Him alone. For those of us who do, may we see you clearly and faithfully through the Word of God. May this Word take root and affect our lives. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. The first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism memorably asks, What is the chief end of man. In other words, why do we exist? What is our highest and ultimate purpose as human beings? The catechism's biblical answer is that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The ultimate pleasure and satisfaction we are capable of experiencing, our soul's highest joy, is to know God. Glorifying God without enjoying God is impossible. And finding ultimate joy and satisfaction apart from glorifying God is equally impossible. The only lasting delight of our souls, the only lasting delight that we can ultimately experience is found in glorifying God. Now this does not mean that we never seek joy in people or in nature or possessions or activities or something like that. God gives us this world to enjoy for His glory. Our problem is not that we love this world too much often, but that we love it too little by failing to love God's glory in this world. Every sinful or idolatrous pleasure that we pursue in this world is a pure pleasure that has become twisted and corrupted. But when we enter eternity, everything that is twisted will be set straight. All the corruption will be gone and the pure joy of it all in God will be realized Everything in which we find beauty in this world will be purified in its beauty and will be astonishingly enriched. In eternity, sky and water, mountains and valleys, flora and fauna, buildings and streets and cities and people and nations, everything will perfectly glorify God and thus bring us greater pleasure than we can now imagine in these very things. And if your view of eternity, your view of heaven is floating around on a cloud somewhere with your feet firmly planted in thin air, you need a new vision. You need a biblical perspective of what heaven will be. It will be much like this, but without sin. Purified, perfected, glorified. 
more pleasure than we can imagine because we will see everything through the glory of God. And we will sing God's praises then, figuratively as we go about the most mundane tasks and literally as we gather with God's people to thunder His praise in songs of joyful adoration such as we've never heard before in this life. Our chief end is to glorify God both now and forever to enjoy Him. Now one way that we as Christians formally express the truth that we are created to glorify God is by way of doxology. By definition, doxology is the expression of glory. It coming from the Greek word doxa, meaning glory. For Christians, of course, a joyful expression of God's glory. And doxology, then, is a most fitting way to close out the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. In this closing doxology, Paul reprises a number of the central themes that he announced in chapter 1 and then develops through the book, and we have seen this in the reading of this passage in Romans 1. But as we come now to Romans 16, notice here in the text, verses 25 to 27, the real point of it is to connect these two things. See verse 25, to Him, and then down to verse 27, be glory. That's doxology, and that's all in one sense that this is about. To Him, be glory. Everything else in this doxology is meat on the bones, so to speak, is, is enhancing it, drawing attention to this task of bringing glory to God. While it feels almost meddlesome, then, to pick apart such a glorious and triumphant flourish of worship, allow me to do so. And let's do so together as we analyze this doxology. But it is to Him be glory. And we can pick it apart in different ways, but I'd like to do it by drawing attention to three specific aspects. And indeed, to call us to glorify God as Paul does here. First of all, let us glorify God for His power to preserve us in Christ. We see this here in verse 25. Now to Him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. We want to return to those phrases in just a moment. My gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ. We'll come back to that. But first let's focus on this phrase, who is able to strengthen you. What is said about God in this doxology? It starts here, He is able to strengthen us as His people. Now don't read that the wrong way. We can read that something like this. God has it in Him to strengthen me from time to time. When I'm weak, God is a source that I can appeal to and He may give me strength in my weakness. He's able to do that. Of course, that is the case. But Paul exalts here in God's power over every enemy of our soul. He's speaking much larger than that. God is all-powerful over sin. And Paul has made that clear throughout this book. God is all-powerful over death. God has defeated Satan and no demon or ruler. As Paul has said, nothing present, nothing to come, no power, no height, no depth, or anything else in all creation will weaken God's power to preserve us as His own. 
able to strengthen you, speaks of that kind of power, of God's power to preserve us. We sing the song that He will hold me fast. That's on top of what this is saying here. He will keep us firm in the faith until we enter into His presence. He is strong and will hold us fast. And we need that, don't we, Christian? This is glorious news because the fragile souls of God's people are beset by many enemies in this waking world. We face them, don't they? We face, as Paul has said, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. We are like sheep vulnerable to the attack of predators of innumerable shapes and sizes. We face disease and injury. We face temptation and poverty. We face failure and loss. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but know this, Christian, God is stronger. He is able to strengthen us through any trial or difficulty. He will hold us fast. United by faith to Christ, we're invincible until God ordains suffering. And when He ordains suffering for our weak frame, He provides the strength to endure it. We are in Christ invincible to death until, de until God ordains that we die. And when we do, He ushers us safely into His presence. He is stronger. He will carry us when we need it. He will rescue us when we need it. If He leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, His goodness and His mercy stalk our every step. Never are we alone in Christ. Never are we at a loss to an enemy. He is strong to save. Paul rejoices. No power of hell we sing. No scheme of man will ever pluck us from His all-powerful hand. Until Jesus returns or the Father calls us home, we stand secure in the protection of His power. Well, is this just fantasy? Is our trust in God's power to hold us fast merely wishful thinking? Paul roots our trust in God's glorious power to persevere to, to the Gospel itself, to what He has been preaching in this book. So to Him who is able to strengthen you, to Him who is strong to save and preserve you. We move now to a consideration of the Gospel. He goes into some depth here as we look at the latter part of verse 25 and through verse 26. Let us glorify God for His saving grace in Christ. Parallel ideas certainly, but he goes into further detail here when we go back to that phrase, According to my gospel. He strengthens you. Now, it's not just in thin air that we make this declaration because it makes us feel good. But He is able to strengthen us and to preserve us because of my gospel. That is the good news that Paul is proclaiming. And this message, this announcement of good news, you see it there in verse 25, is connected to the preaching of Jesus Christ. I think the two are just saying the same thing. His gospel is the preaching, the proclamation of Jesus Christ and what He has done to save. So this takes us back to Romans chapters 1 through 3. We are by nature rebels against God's will 
expressed in His law. By nature, we fall short of His glory. None is righteous. No, not one. No one does good. Not even one. Chapter 3. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. 3.23 But Romans chapters 3 and 4, toward the end of 3 and into 4, salvation from this standing before God, from our sinful state, salvation comes not by works, but by faith in what God has done. This is the good news. It's something that's been accomplished. And we put our faith and our hope in that. And there is our salvation. Not self-preservation. Not self-reformation. But faith in what Christ has done. And so in chapter 5 and verse 6, we read, At the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 5.10, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Romans chapter 6-8 through we learn this glorious truth that we are united to Christ. We're united in His death. We're united in His resurrection. Our very identity is changed. No longer in Adam. We are now in Christ. And that is the source of our salvation. That is the source of our sanctification. To be united with Him. To have His righteous standing. Definitive sanctification followed by our progressive sanctification in righteousness. On the basis of that gospel, we can know by faith that God's power will preserve us through anything. And so Romans 8 and verse 32 says, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not, along with Him, graciously, Give us all things. Paul reprises now the glories of God's salvation plan. The preaching of Jesus Christ is, verse 25, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. The message about Jesus, the Messiah, flows out of the revealing of the mystery. What does that mean? What is the revealing of the mystery? In the New Testament, a mystery speaks of some truth in God's salvation plan that has been kept hidden until the right time for its re revelation. We're beginning to imagine this is possible. But somewhere, there's going to be a family in just a few weeks that's out in the yard working in the heat. And getting their yard uh, picked up again after the, after the winter and putting things together and cleaning up and working. And let's say that a family's out there working on a Saturday and it's hot and the kids are being involved in the labor and they're doing a pretty good job and mom and dad talk to each other and say, let's, let's, let's treat everybody to, to some ice cream. We're going to go out, get some ice cream afterwards after we finish this day of hot work in the yard. It's strategic, isn't it? Let's consider the children as fairly young here and, and just good workers. But it's fairly strategic when you reveal that truth, isn't it? You don't want to reveal it too early because then it becomes, when are we getting ice cream? When are we getting ice cream? And you, you want to kind of just wait. And then there might be a strategic moment where before you're done, you reveal this. 
to kind of get them to press on a little bit further. There's some hope in this fact that the work's going to end and ice cream's out there and it's fairly soon. It's really strategic where you reveal this truth. It's a mystery. In the biblical sense of the word, that's a mystery. It's a reality. This family's going out for ice cream, but it's going to be kept hidden until the right time. This is the idea of mystery here. At the right time, God revealed that the pinnacle of salvation would be in the incarnation, the sinless life, the death as a substitute, and the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. In His wisdom, God did not reveal all of that in the Garden of Eden. What did He reveal? There will be an offspring of Adam and Eve who will crush Satan's head. That's kind of it. And the answer to what that means begins to be unraveled through time and through progressive revelation. That's what Paul is speaking of here. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. It took many generations and many prophecies for God to properly prepare His people to identify who Jesus was. That He was indeed the Messiah. Anybody can say they're the Messiah. But God carefully planned a specific lineage of people to identify who He would be. And it took centuries for God to prepare His people to understand the necessity and the wonder of Christ's sacrifice. Prior to Jesus' incarnation, God had to establish these ideas. In His own wisdom, knowing how this should be revealed, He waited for exactly the right time. In time, God rolled out the covenants of promise. In time, He rolled out the Mosaic Law, revealing to people their innate bent against the law of God and the incapacity of human obedience to save us. In time, God rolled out the covenant to David and the typology of the king and the greater king of David. And God continuing to roll out and to reveal and to bring our attention toward the specific point, the pinnacle of salvation history, the Lord Jesus Christ. So for centuries, God veiled the precise nature of His salvation plan in the work of Christ. But what remained hidden for so long, God worked out His salvation plan, verse 26, it has now been disclosed. That is, it's now been opened up, it's been revealed, the veil has been taken back, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations. That's where we are says Paul, in salvation history. It's been disclosed or made known. Same idea. What was long hidden has now been put on display, and it says here, through the prophetic writings. That I believe, and we won't go into detail here, but I believe that's a reference to the Old Testament. That's a reference to the prophets who wrote, who revealed the coming of Messiah. Now that should strike you as a little bit confusing. It catches our attention right away. God kept it veiled, kept it hidden, and yet revealed it through the Old Testament prophets. 
How is that possible? Well, there's a tension there that I think Paul understands and intends to stand as it is. In one sense, the Old Testament writers could not see all that God had in mind. On the other hand, they prophesied much about Christ and His salvation of both Israel and the nations. We see Paul's emphasis on this, of the mystery of it, in Ephesians 3, verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Christ's ministry, death, resurrection, ascension, reign, hidden in the past, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. That relationship of Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ was something that the prophets of old could not understand. The prophets and apostles of the New Testament era could, by the grace of God, and had revealed it now. But put this together with Romans 15. Isn't it interesting? They couldn't know this, he says. It's a mystery that's been revealed, and yet Paul has just finished in chapter 15 drawing attention to various places, particularly in Isaiah and the Psalter, where there is indication of Gentile response to God's saving plan. So it's kind of a both and. And we might go back to our family who's working in the yard and is on its way to the ice cream shop. There may be, by the parents, certain hints along the way. They want to withhold the information until the right time, but they may hint at it. Hang in there, you're doing a good job, let's press to the end. There's good things coming this afternoon. They say, like what? Never mind, just keep working. In time, in time. Right? In a sense, the Old Testament prophets are doing that. God is showing them, pointing them, unmistakably to Christ. But they could not understand it all, could not put it all together. There's these references to the Gentiles responding, and Paul says, now here we are. The veil has been lifted. The mystery has been revealed We now have come to salvation in Christ, all nations, and this message going to all nations. Verse 26, according, the second part of the verse, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. So it's made known to the nations according to the command of the eternal God. I don't think that's the great commission here. But I think he's just referring generally to the command, that is, it's now made clear the salvation plan of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Obedience of faith referring in part to our, the command to trust the gospel. We obey God when we trust the gospel. And the obedience that then follows once we've obeyed that message. So once we trust Christ as Savior, we're called to a life of obedience. This obedience of faith. I'm obeying Him in trusting the Gospel. And I then walk in obedience with Him day by day. He has revealed the message of salvation in Christ such that we are now in this walk of obedience. All nations, not just Israel now, 
but also those related to Israel, to Abraham by faith among the nations. Christian, let's just put, put on some brakes here and think. It's really not possible for us to conceive how privileged we are to live on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection. A pale illustration might be how we look at the medical world today. We're really glad we live on this side of things. I mean, medical insurance is a massive mess. And it causes all kinds of consternation and difficulty. Imagine living without it. Not just the insurance, but the medical knowledge that we have today. There's all kinds of us sitting here that would not be here if we lived 200 years ago. We would have died, a lot of us, in a lot of different ways. We, we reckon it. I'm really glad I live here. But multiply that. Time over time over time when we consider the privilege of living on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ. There is a liberation from the bondage of sin. There is a freedom that we have in Christ. There is a sacrifice that is final and complete in Jesus. There is a confidence in resurrection. It's not, it's not now a, a kind of murky possibility. Something we're trying to perceive and understand of what resurrection might be. Looking back to certain Old Testament accounts as they passed and saying, there seems to be indications of resurrection here. But now in Jesus Christ, the eyewitnesses to His resurrection, the empty tomb that we considered last week, there is a confidence in the resurrection that we have Perhaps our Leviticus series demonstrated some of the privilege that is ours. But consider again the glories of what God did in sending Jesus. To take on our humanity in addition to His deity. To lay down His life in the place of sinners, bearing the wrath of God in our place. Rising from the dead, giving life to all who call upon His name in repentant faith and trust. We don't have to live where we are. But we do, by the grace of God. He could have set up a different time frame. But here we are, as the nations, worshiping Him and knowing that Christ is risen. These are glories we will celebrate through all eternity as we sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. The only problem is with our cold hearts. The only problem is our struggle to apprehend the full wonder of what Christ has done. But in considering that salvation plan, Paul brings one more consideration about God to our attention in this doxology. And that is, thirdly, let us glorify God for His singular wisdom in Christ. Verse 27, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. The only wise God, considering the wonder of God's salvation historical work to save His people, Paul is moved to exult in God's wisdom. God is, he says here, only wise. In the sense that He is the fountainhead of all wisdom. God is all-knowing. We say in theology that He is omniscient. 
He is all-knowing. God knows all things, past, present, and future, real, and potential. We bring Him glory because He knows everything completely, perfectly, intuitively, immediately, and simultaneously. God never learns anything that He does not already know. He is never surprised, although He does respond emotionally in time to the decisions and deeds of people. He is walking with us, living with us in the moment. But never does He learn, never is He surprised. God's wisdom is complete. He is all-knowing. But there's more. God's wisdom involves more than just His knowledge. His wisdom involves using His knowledge to fulfill the highest purposes by the best means. And in theology we call that omnisapient. He knows all things, but He also knows how to use that knowledge in the very best way. He is all-wise. God's wisdom includes His unbounded skill to discern what are the highest goals and to choose the best means of securing those ends. A reminder to us that His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Every one of us would probably say, I would not run history or the universe the way God does. But then, we have no experience in running a universe. And we have utterly no sense of the height of God's wisdom. We rest in it by faith. We don't struggle. We should not struggle demanding of Him an answer. But resting in His all-knowing, all-wise ways. God's work, says A.W. Tozer, toward, is toward predestined goals with flawless precision. Not only could His acts not be better done, a better way to do them could not be imagined. Exhibit A, verses 25 and 26. God knows how to save. He knows all things. So to Him be glory forevermore. Here we come to it again. To Him be glory. The glory of God will never grow old or run out of steam. Through all eternity, His greatness, His goodness, and His splendor will burn brightly and fill our mouths with praise, with unspeakable joy, in our hearts, we will magnify His name forever for His power, His saving love, and His wisdom, which is unmatched. Through our union with Him, is through Christ indeed, only through Him our Mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we will so glorify Him now and forever. Uh, you don't have to be very awake in this world to recognize God's name is constantly used in vain. It is mocked. His glories remain unseen. They remain undetected. And when seen, they are left uninvestigated, if not despised. But Christian, a glad day is coming. A day approaches when the glory of God will be seen by all. There comes a day when the curse will be lifted and the godless removed 
and no voice will ever be heard again speaking blasphemies. No voice will ever be heard again speaking folly. There comes a day when we as God's redeemed people will sing God's glories with a thunderous zeal in ways that we cannot comprehend now. But as we await that day, our calling is to contemplate God's glory and it is to delight in it. It is for this that we are made. To say to the depths of our very soul, as Paul has said, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. How do we do that? How do we go about that practically in our daily lives? This is one of the reasons that we continue to encourage one another as a church to pray. We say that in our covenant that we will pray for ourselves. might sound kind of selfish to pray for yourselves. Not at all. Not when we come to recognize how far short we fall of recognizing God's glory. We must pray for ourselves that God would give us affections and delights in Him. Ask Him to produce in our souls what we cannot produce. This is why we encourage one another with the Word of God. As we hear God's purifying thoughts, as we read them personally, as we read God's words as families, as we read God's Word in the assembly, and as we seek to understand it and grow in its light, it is by the intake of the Word of God that we see the glories of God. God intends His Word to reflect His glory. And so apart from God's Word, we're not going to see His glory. We're not going to be changed and edified and sanctified by it. And perhaps you really struggle to read God's Word. You struggle to find it enjoyable. You struggle to do it. Let this be another encouragement. Don't go at God's Word simply to read it like it's a task to check off the list for the day. Go at it knowing that it's here that I meet God. It's here that I come to know the true God. It's here that I nurture affections for Him. And you may find that it's not going in. It's dry and it's dull. Stay at it. Read day by day as God gives you opportunity to consider His truth, to grow in His truth. And this is why we encourage being with other godly people. To be around, to be with one another, to be interacting with one another. This is why as a church we structure so many cross connections, hoping that, not that everyone can be part of all, but that everyone can be part of some. And in those cross connections, being with people that have a love for the Lord, it wears off onto us. It passes from one believer to the next to say in so many words as we relate to each other, God is great and greatly to be praised. I don't go to the media to hear that voice. Do you? All I see is the name of the Lord blasphemed and mocked and disregarded as if He wasn't our Creator, as if He wasn't our Savior. 
This is the voice we hear in this world every day, but with God's people we hear a different word. He is great and greatly to be praised. May He nurture within us as we pursue Him these affections. But let's also remember, and fittingly today, that there is a corporate call here as well to sing God's praises in community, to come with formal doxology. That's what we've been doing here today as we sing these songs. The words that are conveyed, the theology that is there, we lift our voices to do what we call doxology. To glory in God. To speak words that announce His glories. And there is a sanctifying power as we come together as a congregation and speak such words. This calling includes the call to lead lives that fuel worship. In our daily life, live in such a way that we long to gather with God's people and lift up His name in praise. But this calling also involves fueling our affections with worship. That as we come cold-hearted sometimes, distant from the Lord, not sensing His glories, we come among His people and we aid one another to see Him as the glorious God that He is. The problem is not with God. The problem is with our cold hearts. To not see it, to not sense it. And may we not take that sitting down, so to speak. May we say, I'll go to work. I will seek the Lord. And as we seek Him, He promises He will be found. We will find the joy of our soul in Him. There is nowhere else to find it. The only joy in this world or the next is going to be that joy which reflects the deeper, higher, fuller joy that we have in God. Know that now. And we'll know that through all eternity. So there is a vital discipline that is necessary in our lives to reorient our thinking and to feed our souls with the truth of God's Word. Individually and privately and corporately as we come together. As I say so often, the music of this church, the singing of this church, the doctrine that we announce by song is not intended to capture the musical types. It's intended to adorn the name of our God. To speak His truth, to announce His glories, together to raise our voices in this discipline of doxology. God is strong to preserve you through anything. His saving grace is a wise and perfect plan that will redeem us through all eternity. And His wisdom, He knows all, and He does everything perfectly. This is a God we can praise. This is a God we must praise. For He is all glorious. And Paul ends with Amen. Let it be. It is true. It stands written. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for this reminder and we confess to you our 
sin, our weakness, how idolatrously we look at ourselves, our circumstances, how often we give place to desires and wants that do not bring glory to Your name. We recognize, Lord, that our lives are not marked by doxology very often, but asking Your forgiveness. We recognize as well the wonder, the promise indeed, that in glorifying You we find our soul's greatest joy. And I pray that You would clear off the murkiness, that You would send the cloud away, the mist that keeps us from seeing this. And that we would love this world, nature, opportunities, and people. Love it as we should, as a reflection of Your greater glory. And allow nothing to enter our heart that competes with that love. Your name is glorious, and we praise it. Help us, Lord, to sing. And may in this place, with these voices gathered here today, may we now lift up your name and rejoice in your glories through Christ. Amen.